condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host Joe Quinn. Hi there. And Alan Martin joins us this week. Hi, everyone. Okay, today is Sunday, September 10th, 2017. This week, we're going to be looking back on some crazy weather events in the last week. More than just weather, though, the planet's rocking again. And we're also going to be looking at some of the big geopolitical events particularly in Northeast Asia, um, some big high-profile events taking place there, not least the potential for World War III, although as we've explained in the show before, we don't think that's actually a scenario on the cards, but for all the hype, you'd be forgiven for believing so. But we're going to get into that too. So, For all the hype, you're encouraged to believe so. Yes. Just but we shouldn't believe hide, it. Under, hide, in, hide under your desk and kiss your, your rear goodbye. No, don't. Um, stay above the desk, pay attention to the news. Mm-hmm. It's scary at times, but it's also... Well, yeah. There's not a lot to be gleaned from the news, so I'd say pay attention to Sat.net. Pay attention to, yeah. There's not a lot not a lot of truth to be gleaned from the news, but so wherever you get your, your truthiness. We're also going to be talking a little bit about uh, what's going on in Syria, some recent events there as well and a prognosis for the future. But before all that, I'd just like to say 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 9 11 You have to say it 16 times now. Every year you have to add on another iteration. I know. Oh, that was close enough to 16. Anyway, 9 11 times 16. 9 11. In the backside. Take your 911. Anyway, what's going on with the weather, huh? Well, the the thing at the moment is this hurricane Irma. Where, is, hurricane? It, where is it now? What hurricane? There's what a hurricane? hurricane? There's a hurricane's blowing everywhere, Joe. I didn't notice. Well, that's what happens when you don't watch the news. You well, see, well, exactly. When you don't read thought. Um, as it's Hurricane Irma did make that turn north and is now. Handbrake turn, yeah. On over the keys, beyond yeah, it. Yeah, more or less. Into the Gulf now. Yeah. Probably gonna skirt No, into the well, it's into the Gulf, but it's still hugging the coastline. Mm. We don't know. It's kind of yeah. Yes. Roughly kind of approaching the western coast of Florida. That's what the projections yeah. are leaning to. Getting up to Naples, Hugging the coast. Um Laura said to us earlier that it could be making a landfall at Sarasota towards the north in the bend. Up in, up in Tampa, yes. Predicted to do that. Pred- predicted Tampa. to go run up the country, basically. And yeah. It's got any, It's the diameter of the uh, of the winds from the eye is um, 70 miles. So, obviously, if it's it's just on the coast, but those winds are going to go in 70 miles. So, are there about so. And then the strongest at the, at the coast. So, uh, yeah, Tampa is scheduled for... 
pretty bad flooding in that area. What do you think? Is it a lot of hype? No, yeah, it doesn't exist. Wow, it doesn't obviously it's, it's real, but is it is the hype justified because it's potentially extremely destructive? Yeah. Or can we overdo it? Well, some of the things that people have been saying, you know, this storm is not survivable, that kind of thing. I mm. think the head of FEMA said that, or maybe the governor of Florida said that. Uh, if that you're in the not Keys. survivable. Yeah. Huh? But that's kind of not true, you know? No, there's a guy live streaming it from his boat so, um, on the Keys. But it's dangerous and it poses a, a risk to your life, of, of course, uh, and especially if you're someone who can't really handle themselves or, you know, take care of themselves. Uh, then, yeah, it's dangerous. Um, but, you know, I think the last one of typical, of, of, of similar, it was smaller, but of similar intensity was Hurricane Andrew, and five people died. It, it crossed Florida, um, kind of halfway quarter, across quarter, the quarter, quarter of the way up or something yeah. like that. And, uh, but it, unlike, uh, you know, so strong winds crossed right through the middle of, uh, of, from one side to the other of Florida, and five people were killed. Um, this one, on the other hand, is going up mostly up the west west coast. Mm. It fairly flattened some islands in the Caribbean, though. Yeah, but it's reduced. In, yeah, in, 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 you know, once it's over land, which it kind of is partially now, um, and it reduces intent and intensity. But it's still very strong. You know, you're talking about 120, maybe 120 mile an hour winds, which is a lot. You know, and um, <clears throat> what I think, what is remarkable about the the, the highest speeds it reached. Mm. Now, there were different descriptions thrown around. The record X ever. What was it? The record highest sustained winds for an Atlantic hurricane yeah. at some point. 185 miles an hour, yeah, for an, okay. Atl- for an Atlantic hurricane. The highest recorded. And just so people know, I mean, an Atlantic hurricane is one that spawned in the Atlantic. There have been winds uh, higher, hurricanes that have higher winds, over 200 miles an hour. But they simply spawned in the, uh, more or less, like in the Caribbean, not out in the Atlantic. Now, if you want to, you could be, you could let hairs and stuff and say, well, the Caribbean is technically part of the Atlantic, blah, 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 blah. So it's just, I don't know, people love statistics and it doesn't really make, make much sense. It's not the strongest hurricane ever. Mm. It's up there in the top five, but it's not the strongest ever. And um, and just because you say because it came from the, from the eastern uh, Atlantic, that's a separate designation or something. Well, okay, whatever. So then it's the strongest, whatever. It seems people just want to say it's the strongest something. So they go, okay, you know, configure the facts so you can say it's the strongest hurricane. It's part of the hysteria. Part of the hysteria. Yeah. So you configure it in such a way. It's alarmism. You configure the Atlantic in such a way. Yeah. That you can Make say it's the strongest one. Yes. Description. Right. What about now? At one point there, you had the three hurricanes. Right. Irma. Jose and Katya in the Gulf form just off Mexico. Was that remarkable? Uh, well, it happened before. Something like that happened was about seven years ago. Is that what they're saying? 2010, yes. Yeah, three similar named storms. There's an interesting parallel because three not similar named storms, well, are similar named in the sense that three, three storms in 2010 had the same uh, same first letters on their names. And they were roughly in the same positions, roughly in the same positions as these three. Yeah. So, yeah. When you when you start looking at the stats, historical stats, um, Irma and the three of them, if you like, in context, aren't that remarkable. There have been at least two years where there have been four at the same time. Mm. 
or intensifying at the same time, not just the remnants of one and then here's yeah. two more. Um, what's, more what's strange is that uh, Florida, for example, has had such a lull for so long. It's something like, you know, uh, any kind of a significant hurricane. I look, it's been about I looked that 12 up. years or something like that. Actually, no, I'm afraid that's disappointing too. I looked that up. Um, it's It's actually about an average of 15 years between each major hurricane to hit Florida. So yeah. it's it's following a roughly consistent, say, 100-year pattern. Right. There is some... Post, there, there's this, well, there have been, there, the there's thing possibly is that, something unusual about it. Well, there have been times where there's been a spate of hurricanes over a series of a few years, and then there's been very few. I mean, there have been, compared to the times, like, basically from 2001 until, say, to say Katrina or in terms of damaging, I think what, what sticks in people's minds is damaging hurricanes, hurricanes that cause a significant amount of damage. And there has been a, a, a lull in those in recent years. In Atlantic hurricanes, well, not, uh, well, not, not well, in typhoons in the Pacific. No, no, but over on the, over, over yeah. on the, on the American side. Uh, I mean, it's been 12 years since Katrina um, and there haven't been significantly damaging hurricanes mm. in those 12 years. That's what people mean. Not that there haven't been hurricanes, but they haven't been damaging ones. Whereas before that then, you would have had, going back into the 90s, you would have had kind of damaging or destructive um, tornadoes relatively regularly, certainly not with a gap of you know 12 years between them. I have I have read... But it's, it's just basically a short-term vision people have of it. You know, people live in a certain era, in a certain era, like, let's say from the 80s to the 90s, they live in that part of the world for that period of time. They see that there's been a, a large number of hurricanes during that period of time, a relatively large number of hurricanes. And then when there's a break, they go, something's wrong, something's weird. But of course, you have to look at the, you'd have to look at a much longer picture to see if there's a pattern to that or if that is normal or, or abnormal. I have read in the past um, studies cited from recent years, um, looking at like recent decades, saying that um, storm intensities are tracking higher and higher. Yeah. They're getting more powerful storms. I think that was specifically about these North Pacific cyclones, their typhoon season, they call it. Um, they found that it's not so much that there's more of them, but you're getting more Cat, cat right. fours, cat fives. There's actually fewer. There's a fewer, fewer amount of right. overall, but they're the ones that they, we do get are more intense, uh, and that's kind of mir- mirrored by the general global patterns in the sense that a lot of places are getting, um, you know, less. For example, a lot of places will be getting less regular, moderate rainfall, and instead getting, you know, getting, you know, overall less rainfall, but. Uh, Extremely heavy rainfall, yeah. Over uh, over short periods of time. Um, in that context, a little fact or factoid. I, mean, I didn't have time to verify it, but this is uh, mentioned in an AP report on these hurricanes. Um, in just three days, Irma, Jose, and Katya have produced as mu- as much energy as about half a normal, whatever normal is, six month hurricane season. Suggesting that there's um, a lot of intensity packed in these storms when they happen. Right. And that may be reflected in the consistency of sustained wind speeds and, as you mentioned, the rainfall. Because Harvey, remember before that, dumped 
the final total was 52 inches of water. In some places, yeah. In and around Houston. Um, yeah. Everything's normal, but there's maybe an edge. Maybe things have intensified at the margin. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's a trickier one to figure out than simply going ah nothing's wrong at all everything's fine and then the totally opposite swing which is total alarmism yeah it's all climate change due to man-made global warming mm-hmm. yeah well there's been a lot of debate on that climate change obviously provoked by these hurricanes that um, you know saying that <laughs> you probably heard a lot of the outlandish statements by people saying that it's either because of uh, uh, it's because of Trump um, for backing out of the Paris Accords, or it's because I think what's her name? What's that actress that starred in the Hunger Games? Katniss Everdeen. No, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, Jennifer yeah. Lawrence. She, she, she apparently it seemed to be in all seriousness said that uh, was saying that it was because Trump was elected. Right. Not because he backed, but she said. You know, you look at we like the Trump, and then you look at uh, Mother Nature's wrath coming as a result. So that's that's where her the brain, sentiment her of is. that thought is pretty prevalent out there. Uh, other versions of it I've heard are this is Mother Nature showing the USA, the Empire, as in its negative aspects. Who's the boss? You know, it's, it, as in it's God's wrath for your warmongering. Yeah. So. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, it's just another hurricane. Uh, it's not unusual in that area. Um, a few years ago, it was 2012, Hurricane Sandy going up the east coast of the U.S., hitting kind of New York area, New Jersey and states there. Uh, there was a similar amount of, um, you know, craziness going on in the media and among people at the time. And, of course, it's something to get worked up about. But, you know, it's very it's very Western-centric, I suppose, is the problem I have with it. You know, at the same time, you might have read reports about 1,200 people dying in floods in, uh, in places like... Um, Bangladesh and Nepal. Bang- right, Bangladesh and Nepal, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know... You have to keep a, a global perspective on the whole thing if you're going to be interested in it at all. You know, of course, most people don't do that. You know, they're just very focused on their own little area and they don't see the yeah the forest for the trees type of thing. You know, um, but yeah, intensities and intensity of these storms is interesting. The intensity of the weather around the world is interesting. Something seems to be happening or changing as to what actually causes hurricanes. You know, there's a standard definition. You can look it up if you want of how of how hurricanes form and why they form. Um, and what caused them to move in a certain direction, etc. But uh, there are, I think, some uh, problems with with that explanation. And it's possible there may be other explanations that haven't been thought of. There may be an electrical aspect to it. We don't know, basically. But And I think it's you know, not really that important. I think the whole point about the weather going crazy around the world is for people to wake up and uh, notice it and uh, take a global perspective and, uh, you know, just think about it and... And take precautions, you know, because um, it's getting, yeah, God, God's pretty vindictive and uh, he's out to get you. So, um, well, it's interesting um, that in the midst of all of this, uh, there was a 8.2 on the Richter scale earthquake in Mexico that killed several dozen people. 
Um, and this is kind of not far from where Katya just made landfall as a tropical storm. Um, right. So there's this kind of confluence of things, and there have been one or two people writing about uh, the um, the kind of pressure effects of uh, of storms on the Earth uh, that would facilitate or or cause um, an earthquake. Uh, I'm not sure how causally related the two are, um, but it was an interesting speculation. Yeah, uh, probably. You throw in the third. Probably it's a correlation. And it's interesting, but there's another one. Yeah, the solar. Uh, that same day, just twelve hours before something, the first reports of this solar flare. And there's been seven, um, seven of them, I think, six or seven of them. Since then, yeah. Um, the strongest in this solar cycle. That's since 2006. Right. So that's that suggests a kind of some, you know, a kind of a. I suppose we'd call it electrical uh, influence or a component to to the whole situation where uh, charged solar particles or uh, highly charged particles, you know, bombarding the Earth, interact with the atmosphere and even with um, the surface of the planet in itself. We don't, I mean, I don't think anybody knows exactly how that might, might, well, be, ha- might be happening. As soon as the flare happened, the, the sun watchers, People like suspicious observers, other sites and forums that, you know, were really onto this. and <laughs> It's all they talk about is their thing, which is great. Um, they were like, okay, there's a big one coming, there's a big one coming, any day, and it, it's going to happen. And, uh, yeah, they hit they, they hit gold on that. They were dead right about that. Um, and it's interesting that it did happen in roughly in the region where, you know, it was getting pummeled by hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Um that earthquake was something else. I, it's 8.2. Okay, the death toll is actually 70 so far. Oh, no, I'm hearing 90, 90 so far. Um, a hit off the south coast, south Pacific coast of Mexico. But it was felt as far, as far away as inland and north as Mexico City. Um, apparently, that was unusual because it was so deep. Apparently, it was 43 miles Mm. down and it should have been substantially absorbed such that its radius would have been a lot smaller. Mm. It could could well have caused far more damage in the immediate area. It didn't, luckily, but somehow it went, it rippled out far further. Um, Yeah, I think the problem is that deep earthquakes like that generally don't do a lot of uh, damage on on the surface, but this one did a a, a significant amount, not serious amount. Um, I mean, it wasn't obviously significant in the sense of, first of all, it was off the coast and uh, I suppose um, didn't go that far inland, was felt in Mexico City, but then it was more in the coastal areas and it um, it it didn't... when there's 90 people killed, that's not a lot of people for an 8.2 no, earthquake. But I, I've heard that a third of the buildings in um, uh, Yuchitan, Waxaca, how do you pronounce that state? Waxaca. Um, but it's a medium-sized city, a third of buildings are collapsed or uninhabitable, mm. so it's just pretty serious. But only for the immediate area. Right. But the fact that I was, was there's incredible footage of Someone is filming uh, in Mexico City that evening on Wednesday, mm. and it's of this um, monument, iconic statue of. I wrote it down here somewhere. It's a famous statue of an angel 
I think on on a broad avenue or square in Mexico City, and the thing is wobbling like swaying. It's just about, but that's not the only remarkable thing in the background. The night sky, just kind of overcast flashes. Yeah, there's flashes. Those earthquake lights were well, taking been. place in Mexico City. Yeah, yeah, seven six hundred miles from where the earthquake. Right, which, right, which suggests that it wasn't. Well, I mean, if that statue was swaying, it it could be, uh, you know, um, transformers going as well, you know. Uh, if if it was strong enough in Mexico City to sway a statue, it may have had some effects on the electrical grid, you know, uh, in certain areas. Who knows? But there's also the phenomenon of uh, of of um, I mean, it's well known. It's not it's not unusual, I suppose. Uh, it's kind of, I think it's meant to be a piezoelectric effect or whatever, where the crust, well, obviously, the crust was moving uh, for the statue to be swaying. So that kind of crustal movement creates uh, electrical discharges uh, that are seen as those flashes in the sky. Yeah. So, pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, there was no tsunami. That that was that was because it was so deep. I mean, an eight point two off the coast of Mexico. If it had been shallow, you would have had a pretty serious. You would have had a kind of uh, you would have had a Japan type tsunami. You know, um, or the one in uh, Indonesia in Banda Aceh uh, in two thousand four. Uh, they were relatively shallow, and they caused a basically a sloshing of the ocean but this didn't that didn't happen this time which was lucky because i think uh, a serious tsunami on the coast of mexico there would have done a lot more damage to people on on the electric connection um there is evidence that solar events tend to intensify storms search on youtube for a good introductory video on this it's evidences of space weather induced natural disasters the, the YouTube channel by a scientist due to gives a very good rundown. Here, here's a quick blurb. There exists several evidences for that solar activities have strong correlation with abrupt weather conditions and tectonic activities, including storm formations, flash floods, volcanic activities, and earthquakes. Hmm. That's evidences of space weather-induced natural disasters. Interesting. The other thing bashing North America in a more remote regions uh, are the wildfires. Um, there's some rough stats here. So far this year, more than 8 million acres are burned in the U.S., placing 2017 behind only 2015 and 2012. That's the overall. So it's another intense year for wildfires. Um in some specific regions, though, it's the most intense ever. In Canada, British Columbia has broken its wildfire record by, by something like a third. It's not over yet. Um, the previous record goes back to 1958, when some 8,000 square kilometers were torched. This year, it's 11,000 square kilometers torched so far. Um, I was looking at satellite pictures of it. And, uh, yeah, they're remarkable. I mean, there are swaths of smoke crossing uh, yeah. the, the the looks like from the Pacific Northwest or or the Northwest. I mean, it's just uh, it's vast. Just to just to give you some sense of uh, of how large these fires are and what they're doing. I mean, for for satellite imagery to show smoke like that, it, it's got to be. Uh, it just has to be incredible, incredibly large. Yes, yeah, so, as soon as they get high enough, they're picked up uh, by you know stratospheric winds. I guess simply the 
the jet stream and they're taken all the way around. They eventually circle the entire northern hemisphere. Um, no, I mean it's 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 only a really bad effect for people who are closest to it. You know, in, it's hard to breathe. People get health problems. You can smell it. You can see it in the air. But even at the great distances where it dissipated, the the accumulated effect of wildfires like this and from other regions in the world, mm. plus volcanic eruptions, mm. plus we suspect, well, we know from NASA, increased meteor dust, they call it, mm. um, is loading the upper atmosphere with right. increased volume of particulates. And of course, right. that well, encourages a- rainfall because... For, that's the key ingredient for making rain. Right. Yeah, it tend, it makes the uh, yeah it makes uh, that uh, moisture in the atmosphere um, coalesce into basically the, around the dust particles. It also it falls fac- out rain. facilitates an environment for intense electrical discharges. Right, because that's there's a, a buildup of electrical tension when you have a kind of resistor like that in the atmosphere. Mm. Well, the thing is, I don't know if uh, smoke. Has that effect or not? That's a question. Because um, yeah. dust is one thing because it's actually quite relatively large particle size, but smoke is, uh, I don't know. But, I mean, it could well have an effect, you know, clogging up the atmosphere even more. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's, the problem with the whole situation is that we've been, <laughs> we're being slowly acclimatized to these kind of events happening, you know. Uh, we have been, uh, you know, acclimatized uh, pun intended, um, to these climate events uh, of of greater intensity happening over the past you know ten years, um, you read about them in the news. The mainstream media does um, report on them, and then people just come see, come to see them as a new normal. Uh, so every now and again, you have to kind of stop and say, "Wow, you know things are pretty crazy," you know. Uh, on the planet, um, you have to have a good memory to try and look back, and it's difficult for people because if you know, depending on what age you are, or whatever. But if you have to go back twenty years or thirty years or whatever, you don't really necessarily remember. You may not have even been watching at that point, you know. So you can think, well, like thirty years ago, I don't think, seem to remember there was so many floods and wildfires and uh, fireballs and stuff, you know. Well, we know fireballs are on the increase, but it's hard to know if that was all going on and you just simply weren't paying attention. Uh, so you'd have to look at some actual statistics to see. Uh, that have been, you know, have been kept that uh, to show the numbers of wildfires, whether or not they are actually increasing, um, and floods and and droughts and that kind of thing. You know, someone would have to put together a database of that and show over the past twenty years that there has been a significant mm. increase in it for anybody to really know for sure. But yeah, besides that, or, or uh, in the absence of, of of that, you can still look around you and see that. Uh, as a general rule, if you pay attention to particularly the, the climate and the weather, things are pretty chaotic. Um, and if you just, I suppose you'd, you could just take your own home area as a as a as a kind of yardstick, uh, because that's the place you're most familiar with, um, and you'd get a reading. You could then extrapolate that out to around the world. You, know, you can get a reading on if you see that your own home area. Has, is having much uh, kind of either colder winters or warmer winters or mm-hmm. uh, colder summers or warmer summers or more rainfall, more floodings, um, that kind of thing. That that you yourself can verify in the sense of you don't you know that it wasn't that way 
uh, when you are like younger, uh, you can get a reading on it that way and know that the that things are pretty crazy right now. Well, on, on that note, there must have been about eight or ten or twelve places globally this past year that have had unseasonably cold weather or just like crazy amounts of snow at you know at times of the year when they're you know they typically don't expect snow and you know you can't help but think that the you know the whole global warming things are warming things are the hottest ever message that we've been getting is uh doesn't uh, permit in the minds of some people to register that something is really off with all of these um kind of weird uh, cold spells and and uh, heavy snowfalls in various places. Um, well, one one place that had record snowfalls in general across the region was the western half of the North American continent. Mm-hmm. And I was reminded of this when reading about the wildfires. Experts say they're surprised by the intensities of the wildfires this season because they expected that the record snowpack from last year should have meant that they, you know there was something there to counter to feed, I suppose, to stave off uh, dry ground and dry brush. Right. But no, it didn't work out that way. You, they got both ends of a kind of an, a, a longer stick of extremes from the cold and, and high levels of precipitation to the other of not enough rain and tons of lightning. And well, who knows what else fe- feeds the wildfires. There's probably some element of uh, something seismological to it too. I suspect there's some fuel source from underground, I mean, outgassing reports mm-hmm. um, are not always, they're rarely mentioned, in fact, in connection with wildfires, but we suspect some kind of correlation there because the wildfires have been happening in places they absolutely shouldn't happen, and at times they shouldn't happen. Like, I think it was the last couple of years in Norway and Tibet, and, and almost in the heart of winter. Yeah, in Scotland, in Scotland in recent years, in Ireland, in areas of, of bogland, basically, we have very low kind of scrub. Uh, brush kind of heather and this was in maybe March sometime March maybe early April and uh, the the ground was still actually that frost uh, the night before the wildfire started so effectively on a frosted kind of a boggy ground that's saturated with water and there's barely anything that would normally burn you'd be hard pushed to actually set it and fire yourself with some gasoline Uh, wildfires were spreading all over the place that was really bizarre you know so that suggests that there was some other source of, of ignition that uh, that at least started them or fueling them, you know. But that idea of gas seeping up from those kind of areas is not that, not that unusual either. But it's the fact that it would uh, catch on fire, you know, and spread over a, a wide area is, is really strange in, in the heart of winter almost. On, on the global perception or, or otherwise of something being amiss with the climate, um, that AP report I mentioned earlier, uh, it was written by one of their most, how will I say, his most industrious reporters, Seth Borenstein. Um, he, he's commenting on the fact that there are all these things going on at the same time. Um, he writes, with four big hurricanes, a powerful earthquake and these raging wildfires, it seems that Mother Nature recently has just gone nuts. And then to the end, towards the end of his article to explain it all, he says, sometimes there's a pattern in chaos, sometimes there isn't. Looking for patterns gives us a sense of control. 
And if we don't really have it, said Scott Lillenfield, a psychology professor at Emory University in Atlanta, the human mind is a pattern-seeking organ. That's how our minds work. It just feels like, you know, it's the apocalyptic end times, he said. But a lot of this stuff is just getting attention because of social media. (laughs) What's the point in starting an article that's commenting on the fact that all this really serious stuff is happening and then just ending it by saying there's nothing to see here? But he himself said in the title of his article that was picked up, by the way, by probably thousands of Western news sites, because that's what they do, they just pick up whatever AP and Reuters print. He's acknowledging the weather's gone nuts and then saying to you, no, it's all in your mind. Well, he's saying that there's no pattern to it. I, it, <clears throat> um, it uh, he's, he's definitely he's trying to disabuse people of the idea that this has, there's something that they should be sitting up and taking notice of, whether it's leading to some kind of global catastrophe type thing, right? He's trying to he's trying to pour water on that and keep people calmed down, which isn't really a good service to them. But at the same time, it's not a good service to people to encourage them to think that it's you know that to, to blame it on, for example. Uh, anthropogenic uh, global warming um, or CO2 emissions that it's our fault, you know. Um, it's far better to look at it as, as part of a cycle that the planet actually goes through and yet yeah, may involve may involve very bad things and the planet may basically go through a period of serious chaos um, that, that affects the lives of millions of people. Like basically the climate, the stable climate that we've had, the relatively stable climate that we've had that has that, and, and around which human uh, society, global society, has organized itself in terms of uh, the production of food, and most importantly, perhaps, um, that that climate is changing. And that does so on a, on a regular basis. And it is a serious problem if the climate around which, the stable climate around which human beings have organized the production of food for the planet suddenly changes. The places where... Uh, the major, for example, grain-producing areas of the world uh, suddenly become not very hospitable to the production of grain anymore. Well, then you've got a problem uh, because you can't just automatically shift everything over to some other part of the world, you know. Um, so it is something that that uh, could be catastrophic, um, and people need to pay pay attention to it. Basically, you know. I mean, whether or not you know what the what the cause is or whether it's a long-term cycle or whether it's Trump who did it or whatever. Well, I mean, obviously the idea is that Trump did it is ridiculous, it's divisive, uh, or it's because of Trump or it's God's judgment or whatever. Or on the on the right side, it's uh, God's judgment for the godlessness of America and the social justice warriors and stuff. That's not going to help anybody. What are you going to? So, in the midst of a food crisis where your foods have all been food have all, has all been destroyed by by droughts or floods, are you going to fight with each other? That's, that's a good. That's a good. That's plan. what usually happens historically. Hmm? Well, I mean, that kind of food wars can can cause it. You know, I mean, scarcity of food or scarcity of water can cause wars, but that's not what's happening in in America today, for example. Uh, this conflict in America between the right and the left has got nothing to do. Nobody's nobody's going hungry, and uh, nobody's out in the streets protesting for for food. You know, um, but I don't know. I had a strange thought there the other day. Actually, it wasn't the other day, it was today. Um, about Obama, you know. It's his fault. Uh, that was because of Obama, basically, yeah. <laughs> no one should think of oh, this, that, but actually, what? hang on a second, I have a theory. That was your thought. 
Okay. No, that wasn't. I didn't think it was because of Obama, but I was thinking that it was interesting that Obama was brought in and had eight years, you know, and the effect that an Obama, eight years of Obama as a black president had on America. Uh, Here we go. Um, not from an Alex Jones perspective necessarily, whatever, but um, from the perspective of a black president effectively empowering. It seems just to me, it seems there, that there's a a kind of a correlation between eight years of Obama and the rise of Black Lives Matter. Uh, well, I'm not saying it's only because there was a black president and that emboldened or gave courage or whatever you want to call it to the black community in America. But uh, not just that, but certainly that may have been a factor, but also the policies that were instituted under uh, Obama. I mean, Obama, I don't know if you people know, but this guy, uh, Saul, Alins- Saul Alinsky, he was a... Uh, uh, I don't know where he was from originally, but he was a Jewish American. Basically, he was the father of Chicago. I as, say. Yeah, he was described as the father of uh, activism in, in America in, in the kind of sixties and seventies. He was he developed the the concepts and ideas around how to be, be an effective activist and how to do activism properly in an effective way. And he had all sorts of theories and ideas. And, and he wrote some, rules for radicals. Rules for radicals. Yes. So um, and Obama was. There are pretty, uh, pretty uh, definitive uh, proofs, or there's definitive evidence that Obama was uh, linked to him in some way. There's allegations that you know people associated with this guy Linsky were mentors of Obama and that kind of thing. You know, and uh, and Linsky said that you know one way to one of the best ways to uh, produce an activist movement is to focus on minorities. Uh, you got to get the minorities, any minority, into uh, your activism because obviously there you can leverage their minority status to give legs to your to your uh, your cause or your ideology. You know, so just it was just a an it wasn't a well cooked thought, but it just occurred to me, you know, uh, that uh, it's interesting that this has come on the heels of Obama as a lefty kind of you know humanitarian. Uh, civil rights or equal rights uh, kind of president who was then followed up by, as far as most people are concerned, or a lot of people are concerned, his exact opposite in um, in Donald Trump, which was enough to provoke this this outpouring of kind of um, SJW angst um, in America, you know? Anyway, well, no. just on that Thank note, o- Obama induced an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance, um, you know, by virtue of his uh, progressive liberal facade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think uh, it, it certainly set the stage for um, resentment and five minutes of hate uh, against Trump, who was, uh, you know, just this kind of... Uh, unpolished, brash, um, crude, if well-meaning uh, guy who really was an outsider in, in the truest sense of the word. Um, and it, it's just a testament to how how much uh, stock people put in uh, appearances that, uh, that people were um, following the Obama progressive uh, uh, brand with Hillary. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's a big reaction. It's a big shock to a lot of these people who thought, right. you, you know, who, uh, you know, things aren't, things aren't good, but they're not as bad as they will be under Trump. Right. I think. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, is whether or not that was planned in some way, you know, how, how deep these people who engage in uh, kind of social engineering, how, how deeply they, they go with their, with their, their plans and their plots type of thing. If, if that was thought about in, in those terms, you know, eight years of Bush as a white kind of, you know, establishment, conservative, warmongering mm-hmm. president that pissed everybody off, uh, pissed a lot of the left off because of his warmongering, let's say. And you have Obama who comes in and says all the right things, I'm going to close Guantanamo, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and he's black, so it's more fair, right? He's, he's going to stand up for, for black Americans' uh, rights, etc. Uh, so everybody heaved a sigh of relief. And you imagine you can throw, put your mind back to 2008 and the outpouring of, you know, I don't know what it was. Uh, it was ecstasy almost uh, in in America, even amongst, I'd say, amongst the majority of the people that um, that they had a after Bush, after the Bush years and the war, the wars that were started under Bush, um, that Obama, here he was. I mean, it's just, it wasn't just that he was black, but that being black, he represented a more egalitarian society and therefore by implication possibly less warmongering, you know. Of course, and that people who believe that then uh, were able to overlook all of the warmongering that he engaged in. The fact that he basically not only continued Bush's warmongering, but actually increased it, uh, him and Clinton, you know. So they seem to have leveraged this. If you look at the reaction to Trump, it's it's the leveraging of, uh, of the black minority in, in Obama, even though he's an establishment politician. That doesn't matter to the average person. It's like it's just an archetypal archetype almost of him being a black minority president. Uh, minority in the U.S., obviously, and um, and Clinton as a woman, you know, the two things that America needed after eight years of Bush, which was feminism, you know, equality basically between the sexes and between the races. That's what, the, that's what both of them represented to these people. And then the horror of having uh, Trump come in, uh, just the whole thing smacks of a kind of, a, I mean, you could say it's just a natural course of events type of thing, given the, the divisions within American society and the different attitudes in society. But if you allow for this idea that someone behind the scenes has a conception of manipulating vast numbers of people in a country, manipulating their minds effectively, you know, toying with their minds and knowing people's psychology, the psychology of the, of the crowd or the masses very well, that you can imagine... That if they if they if they think along those terms that they may have um, planned it in a certain sense this way you know but at the same time the alternative is that it was just a reaction like I said you know that it's um, it's a natural function as opposed to anybody deliberately tweaking and that's the thing we always come down to is trying to figure out if where that line is you know between or if 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 it's one or the other or if it's a bit of both whatever or if there is a way to separate the two and, and see clearly that it's not just a, a natural uh, a natural function, but rather there is a hand involved in this, you know, and it's that's it's, it's, a, it's a perpetual thorny issue in terms of trying to, to figure that out, and we we're trying to navigate that that kind of knife edge as best we can, you know. Yeah, in, in academia, they put it on a a plane of structuralism versus agency. Mm. So structuralism, you you explain events, phenomena, trends. Cause and effect. By, yeah, by saying, well, what were the structural forces that went into it? Mm. Let's look at all the possible inputs to produce that situation. And on the other end of the scale, or axis, however you're you're thinking of it, agency 
gets into the facts of who exactly was where making what decision when. Mm. And if you like a conspiracy theorist, in quotes, whatever exactly one thinks of it, is someone at the far end of generally of agency. They, they're looking mm. at it through the lens of everything being Plan. done by these people, planned here for this outcome and on, on to the next. It's always circling back into agency. It's a danger to stay too far at that end for too long. You mm. can go there for explore, in the purpose of exploring, but you need to bring it back and consider the structural forces Right. At the other but, end. But there's an interplay between the two, basically. Yeah. <clears throat> there's, there's truth to both, and you can't really separate them. Um, yeah. I even thought, I'll admit to even thinking that, uh, for some reason, uh, Nostradamus's prediction, such as they are, uh, about uh, the last uh, pope being black, and some people previously have said that, well, pope at the time of Nostradamus was the kind of like, the kind of world leader. The so, head honcho. So today that would be the US president, and the... Uh, and that uh, maybe that meant that he was seeing something there from all those years ago, but he was seeing Obama as a last establishment president. Ah. We're in a new... I.e. the last pope. Hmm. Amazing. That's my shocking revelation for, <laughs> for, for today. Um, yeah. So... On to Bible prophecy? No. No. Let's... Well, we're in the end times. That's... We're there. That's the bottom line. <laughs> Profound change. The end of something, beginning of something else. But life's all about change. So, you know, some are big changes, some are small changes. You just got to roll with the punches or roll with the hurricanes. Roll with your homies. Um, well, do yes. we want to move on to uh, some uh, geopolitical yes. earthquakes and developments and uh with bricks maybe yeah they're not so much earthquakes are they really because again there's an accumulation of things taking that have taken place over decades but particularly in recent years um they're kind of earthquakey um bricks everyone's familiar with the this year's annual meeting was held in xiamen in china so, Mr. Xi Jinping was chairman of the meeting this year. Um, in terms of, I mean, it's, BRICS is still, you know, it's still in a formative state. I mean, they have a bank, they set up a bank, but really it's kind of like a high-level summit thing. I mean, they came to four agreements on trade cooperation, another one, innovation cooperation, Customs cooperation, that's a bit more practical. And then, yes, something else in relation to that new development bank that's under the ages of BRICS on strategic cooperation. So I suppose it's an affirmation, if you like, of what's already up and running, at least at the strategic abstract level between the non-Western countries. Um Xi Jinping said, we five countries should play a more active part in global governance. So, yeah, it's in the realm of abstract. We should, we could. At the same time, though, with each such meeting and um, spin-off deals that are made as a result of them, it's becoming a fact on the ground. It's becoming established. So, 
rather than say we five should play a more active part in global governance, they effectively are just by affirming it. So BRICS takes place in China and it's, it's kind of, it's overshadowed in any Western reporting of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, by North Korea and the nukes issue and the potential World War Three scenario, which we know isn't really potential, but it's it, that story, that narrative completely overshadows BRICS. But at least maybe it's progress. I don't know if it's progress. It's a slight change. What I noticed with this year's BRICS event is that it got reported at all in Western mainstream media, mm. including U.S. media. Of course, only as a tie-in to the issue of the day, North Korea. But still, that's something. Um, that was quickly followed up by, that was a three-day event last week, and then it was followed up by another annual event, um, the what the Russians call the Eastern Economic Forum, where roughly the same, no, it, it's not BRICS, so it's not quite the same lineup, but it's the same, it was the same lineup in terms of the, the local interests had in turning up. So this ties back in with North Korea. You've got this Eastern Economic Forum where you've got Japanese Prime Minister, the new South Korean Prime Minister, of course, China's leader, Putin shows up, and many others from further afield. As far as Southeast Asia, Vietnamese leader was there, and a North Korean delegation. I, I believe, I, I didn't hear anything about what, what they said, but apparently they did show up. They just maybe avoided any press conferences or anything. But So again, North Korea would have been the issue of the day at that event too. At least in, the, in any Western mainstream media mention of it. But meanwhile, facts on the ground, the Russian uh, forum held in Vladivostok resulted in something like 40 plus billion dollars worth of actual trade and investment deals being signed. Um, That's what I mean by things taking form beyond, beyond just simply abstract, well, let's Let's do it. Let's do something about this. Mm. And then everyone goes, everyone says, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then they go home and nothing's done. It actually is producing real changes. Um, there, there was there were a number of, there were tripartite agreements um, in terms of constructing major um, rail and shipping links. One of them is um, to do with, I think the Russians and the Chinese advanced the, their plan to have this new railway system linking China with Europe. Mm-hmm. There was um, another thing that's brought up is the Chinese are planning to build the world's longest tunnel on, on the sea tunnel. It'll be twice as long as the Channel Tunnel in Europe under the Bohai Sea, which would link basically just beyond North Korea with the Bay of uh, Beijing. Um, but all of that's just a prelude, really, because, yes, yeah, another another couple of business events, and it's attracting interest. Because, of course, the real topic was, you know, North Korea. Um, but not just that. It was also, it also ended up being a platform for discussing many other things. I'll give you an example. One of the things at the BRICS press conference Putin was asked about by Russian journalists 
but they, they got picked up. His response was actually reported on accurately by Western media was uh, on the issue of North Korea. And what does it say here? It's a great answer because uh, he begins by saying, well, look, I may as well tell you in public what we've all just been saying. We, me and the regional world, the leaders at this event, have been saying in private. And then that's when he spells out this, this comment about saying, um, <clears throat> he basically spells it out as, as the North Korean regime sees the situation. That's where he says they would rather eat grass than give up their quest for nukes. And the longer we pressure them, the more determined they are to do it. Mm-hmm. And he says, therefore, sanctions aren't working if that's what they're designed to do to stop them doing that. Mm. It's, this is totally counterproductive. Um, and he reaffirmed again that only diplomatic negotiations are going to work on that situation. His response was so reasonable. Like I said, the Western media actually objectively reported on it without bashing Putin for once. Um, you've probably seen Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham tweets, and he says, I can't believe I'm agreeing with Vladimir Putin, but I am. Further sanctions on North Korea, very unlikely to work. Um, Vice News hates Putin, hates Russia. Uh, article titled Vladimir Putin's weirdly on point analysis of North Korea concludes pronouncements like Trump's and Haley's on North Korea just make the US look out of touch with reality and cede the most reasonable sounding policy ground to Putin of all people. Uh, one last one. Uh, this, there's a pattern I notice all over the place. Canadian mainstream news, CBC News, um, headline titled, <clears throat> As U.S.-North Korea Escalate War of Words, Could Putin Be a Voice of Reason? <laughs> so uh, they, they, they can't help, but they, that, that's, that's kind of what the earthquake, the geopolitical earthquake effect of this is, where just by repeating the same reasonable things over and over at event after event. Sooner or later, it's kind of like that expression about the truth. You know, first they beat you over the head with it, and eventually they agree with you, and eventually then they just claim it as, oh, well, everyone always knew this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's kind of the earthquake. The earthquake is that reality creating by the empire is, is being isolated even in its own fertile ground, you know, in the minds of the Western audience, the mainstream mm. audience. Yeah, well, it's... Um, the whole situation is... Uh, is still in progress, as, as, as we've been talking about uh, many times on, on previous shows and in different articles about... Um, that we've published uh, about the... what BRICS is and what the what the what the goal of Russia and China and the alliances that they're making and the point of uh, even Russia's intervention in Syria and the whole Chinese mm, you know uh, economic initiative of uh, they call it one belt one road basically to link China with you know in theory ultimately with with Europe you know to link the Eurasian con- continent together. Uh, not just with China, but China spearheading it and bringing in other countries to basically build up an infrastructure that would link the Eurasian continent together and boost trade and create, you know, 
literally millions of jobs, prosperity, all that good stuff. And uh, as we've mentioned on many occasions, this is a major, it's probably the existential threat to American hegemony and possibly to America itself as it's currently configured uh, economically. So that's why um, you see, that's why, I mean, many conflicts are being waged with that as the, as the real reason behind them uh, and covered up with some, you know, some plausible narrative about terrorists or something like that. And that's, that's actually what's going on in, in Myanmar or however you pronounce it, Myanmar. Um, I don't know how they pronounce it, but they, people who live there. But anyway, I'll call it Myanmar. Do they themselves not call it Burma? I have no idea. Okay. Um, but anyway, so you have this conflict in Myanmar, the Rohingya uh, people who are basically Bangladeshi Muslims, people, Muslims from Bangladesh who had moved uh, into that area. It's right on the border. And suppose there's this, you know, furor in the press at the minute. And you, you always, it, you know, you should always be, be very concerned when you hear, when you see the UN and Western nations all getting very vocal about the poor people in that part of the world. Uh, because generally speaking, it's generally, it's generally true that uh, they're not really concerned about the poor people in that part of the world, um, especially when it's an armed conflict. Uh, or really any other any other kind of problem that those people have. There's there's some ulterior uh, agenda at work, usually trying to um, increase their their influence in a country or to protect their interests in general. And I think it, it seems to be that in in, in Myanmar this uh, this insurgency or whatever you want to call it, these terrorists, the Rohingya <coughs> group that have taken up arms against over the past number of years, have taken up arms against the uh, the military in Myanmar and the military's fighting to get back against them and stuff. It's all very murky in terms of what's actually going on, but it seems to be the way the, the Western press is is spinning it is that these poor people are being um, uh, persecuted by, by the Myanmar military uh, forces. And even the darling, for many years now, the darling of the, of the Western... Western democracies, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce her name, but you know her face, Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah, something like that. Bonner wrote a song about her. Right. She's this one who's, you probably noticed, if you remember, she was under house arrest for a total of about 15 years from, I think from 1990 or so until, uh, until relatively recently. Um, at different times, she was under house arrest for a total of about 15 years. Um and she is even being criticized in the Western press now because she is now, the, I mean, the story of Myanmar is that uh, it was under military dictatorship uh, from, you know, after uh, kind of as a fallout of the collapse of the Soviet Union, really, and the kind of uh, independence movements that spread of that and the fall of communism, effectively. And Myanmar was, came, became, came under a, a military dictatorship in about 1989 or 90. And it was that way until... Just recently, in the last two years, in 2015, they had their first really, truly democratic elections. Uh, and throughout this period of dictatorship, this woman, Aung San Suu Kyi, was um, she was the darling of Western democratic uh, powers because she was the force for democracy. She was the one who wanted. She had a lot of support from the people, but these evil military dictators were holding on to power and had put her under house arrest and all that kind of stuff, and had tried to kill her at one point, etc. But now it's a democracy, and she's effectively the prime minister, and the military aren't really um, 
uh, uh, I mean, there's still a power there, but they've more or less ceded, ceded control to democratic forces, and her party is, in, is, is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the biggest party in the, in the country, and she's the prime minister, there's a president as well. And uh, she's been criticised now because she's not doing enough. She's not being clear enough in terms of uh, condemning the aggressions against the Bangladeshi Muslims, the Rohingya that are living in southern, uh, southwestern uh, Myanmar. Um, the interesting thing is that the dictatorship, you get into geopolitics here because obviously Myanmar shares a border with uh, China and uh, the dictatorship for those uh, 25 years or whatever um, since 1990 was pretty much, you know, a kind of well, fully, pretty much supported uh, by Chinese, by the Chinese government, and the Chinese uh, wanted to hold on to Myanmar because you know big countries like that tend to want to make sure that they know what's going on, have uh, good relationships or uh, a controlling stake, let's say, if, in some way or another, with the countries on their borders because of you know the threat of that has been there for you know hundreds of years of uh, other powers, other empires, and trying to you know, kind of create problems for you and, and on your bordering countries. So Myanmar was pretty much. Uh, in China's pocket uh, for all those years, and now uh, that and that's why uh, the West was so was so giving so much uh, attention to this uh, this female activist uh, who's now the prime minister all those years because uh, and, and condemning at the time condemning the Chinese and the and the Burmese or the Myanmar uh, dictatorship for her treatment and her house arrest and stuff because they wanted to democratize Myanmar and, and basically have Myanmar as a beachhead for Western democracy, turn it into another essentially client state of uh, the American empire. Um, um, but the problem is that, uh, you know, so she's, she's been criticized now. She's no longer a darling because she's not getting on board with this international, uh, the international community, uh, the West, basically being up in arms about these poor Rohingya people who are being attacked by the Myanmar military. And she's basically saying, well, it's not, it's, you know, I can't do very much. It's, and it's not really what, it's not the way you're saying it is. These people aren't being, there's no genocide. These people, you know, there's, there's, to quote Trump, there's bad people on both sides. You know, there's, there's stuff being done on both sides. It's not as black and white as the West would like to, <gasps> how dare Oh my you? God, she's supposed to KKK. I'm triggered. I'm triggered. Microaggression. How do you, how dare you say there's bad people on both sides? So, um, yeah, uh, the Chinese obviously have a stake in this. They're looking quite closely at it. And when you consider um, what's actually going on, so these Rohingya people who, if you look at, it's in, um, what's the name of the, the state? It's Rakhine, Rakhine State, which is one of the states of, of Myanmar. And it's down on, it's on the western side uh, of Myanmar, on the Bay of Bengal. And so you, this this area has blown up into a kind of a, uh, a conflict zone between what are effectively separatist Muslim uh, insurgents who claim they're being treated very badly and oppressed for a long time by the Myanmar authorities and the Myanmar military is in fighting with them and the West is on the side of the Muslim separatists. Uh, their leader, at least the leader of the Rohingya uh, military group, uh, has links to Saudi Arabia, uh, appears to be possibly getting some money. There's been allegations he's been getting money and weapons from the Saudis. And yet, when you hear anybody getting, or when you hear the Saudis giving money to anybody, you can be pretty sure that the US has rubber stamped it as well and has up to its neck in it. Now, the interesting thing about this is you just do a bit, <laughs> if you just put it in the context, the thing is you should always put these conflicts in the context of the broad geopolitical uh, situation and, and look at that first. And very often you'll find a pretty clear reason why this this could be happening 
in this part of the world uh, at this point in time. And we just mentioned the Chinese attempts to uh, kind of break out of Asia, essentially, and unite the Eurasian continent. Well, it just so happens that in that area, the Rakhine, uh, or, uh, Rakhine state uh, in, in Myanmar, where this conflict is broken out with possible uh, Muslim groups or separatist Muslim Bangladeshi groups being funded by Saudi Arabia, uh, you have uh, the Chinese very interested in a port in that state, on the coast, on the Bay of Bengal, um, the port is called. I'm gonna. Well, I'll try and pronounce it. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not gonna pronounce it. <laughs> Kayak Poo, Kayak Poo, Poo, whatever is important. It's a very important port because it is the entry point for Chinese oil for a Chinese oil and gas pipeline. Uh, and the reason that the Chinese this would just go straight across a gas and pipeline coming from well, from the coast and into China. And the reason the Chinese are very interested in this and need this and it's very strategically important for them is because it would be an entry point, entry point for uh, oil and gas from the Middle East, specifically Iran, let's say, um, or Middle East in general, uh, to that port. Which, and then the Chinese would build, have, I think have already started building two pipelines um, through Myanmar into China. And they need this because they've, for quite a long time now, they've been looking at different ways to diversify or get around the the problem of the shipping lanes, where, there, where all of their energy comes from the Middle East, uh, goes through goes through the Malacca Straits. And just a couple of years ago, I think in 2015, the Americans, the American Pacific Fleet, and along with the Australians, had war games simulating the blockading of those straits. Uh, so the Chinese said, okay, you know, you might be able to blockade these straits, so... Uh, We'll just we'll just find an alternative to get our energy. We'll just ship it in <clears throat> through Myanmar, basically. We we'll build our own, and then the so they plan to do this. They try to buy. They want to buy uh, like a controlling stake in the port. Give like seven or eight billion to buy uh, a controlling stake in the port, and uh, in that area, then an insurgency breaks out with local Muslim Bangladeshi uh, insurgent terrorist type people who go around creating massive things. And then at the same time, you have the Western media and Western governments all kind of lobbying for something to be done. Maybe send in UN peacekeepers or do something to... Or maybe even this part of the country should be independent. Mm. You know, i.e. the place where the port that the Chinese want is. Uh, so... It's very interesting just to see, to see it happening in that way, you know. And if, of course, America is going to respond to this Chinese initiative, economic initiative, along with uh, uh, Russia and Iran and Pakistan now at this point and several other states of this one belt, one road of uniting um, most of Eurasia basically over to even over to Western Europe eventually, or creating a reality where Western Europe would eventually have to look to the east as opposed to looking across the Atlantic to the west are looking only as far as the Middle East, that they would have to look uh, further to the West and see that that big landmass of Eurasia is actually the place where all of the resources are and the Chinese want to build the infrastructure to make that a reality or it would be a, uh, that Eurasian continent would be, um, would be joined mm. uh, together, all of the countries would be joined together economically through railways, roads, uh, pipelines, all sorts of, and, and building, building up cities and creating hubs 
uh, for transport and, and economic hubs within the, the country, within specific countries. Um, so it's pretty much the same thing. It's just interesting because it struck out to me as a, as a blockade. You know, it was a terrorist. What, what it came, comes down to is that in Myanmar, you have a terrorist insurgency and they have been Muslims as well. A Muslim terrorist, uh, an outbreak of Muslim terrorism in a country, uh, in a part of a country where China wants to use the port in that in that part of the country to uh, trans- transfer uh, oil and gas. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's very similar to what's happening in Syria, what mm-hmm. has been happening in Syria, uh, and, and, and the American Plan B in Syria, which is to carve a state to out carve, of to carve, create a Kurdistan yeah. out of northern Syria and northern Iraq, so that Iran cannot have a direct link to the Mediterranean, where it would ship its oil and gas to Europe. Uh, so it's basically oil and gas wars, oil and gas pipeline wars, basically, with the American empire pitted against the emerging kind of Eurasian uh, conglomerate, effectively, which BRICS is a part of. Um, so, yeah. There's a twisted irony in this in this story because um, the West lauding Aung San Kyi, I think her name is Aung San Suu Kyi. For lauding her for all these years, you know, she got the Nobel Peace Prize, right. got a song written for her by Bono, um, as the kind of the great Western hope of then Burma, now Myanmar. She's now being attacked because, ironically, those efforts were paying off. Um, she became prime minister. Right. Um, Myanmar became far more democratic. Um, humanitarian situation improved, I believe, for everyone there. There were there's a very delicate balance. It's taken years to build, but it's working. Of building good relations between the Buddhist majority in Myanmar as a whole and its minorities in in Rakhine State now. The Muslims are the majority, but in any event, as a whole, there's been good work. And if anything, the country has become more liberal. It's done what is what what was prescribed for it by the West, mm-hmm. by all these NGOs. But he, here's where here's where re, reality they intervened on them. They were hoping, I guess, assuming that th- their plan to democratize the world would isolate those authoritarian remnants right. and eventually force them to conform and come to our way of seeing things, come, in come. this case, China. Right. But no, this new democratizing, liberalizing state is making these deals with China. No, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to come over to our side. Well, it's nonsense. I mean, of course, <laughs> of, course, sta- of course, states in Asia and East Asia are going to make deals with the biggest, uh, the most populous country in the world right on their border. Of course they're going to make deals with it. And when America tries to stop that from happening, well, then there's problems, you know. And in fact, the problems are created by America where they try to stop it from happening by by setting a fire in a country. And that's what they do. That's what America does. If things don't go their way, they have to set a fire. Uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Myanmar mm-hmm. being democratized and, uh, and that kind of stuff, uh, which it has done. But the problem is that that comes with strings attached. When, when the international community, quote-unquote, you know, pushes for this 
democracy in, in Myanmar and then they get it. The next, that's only the first step. The next step is now you got to basically be fully aligned with us. Even though you're on a border with China, you have to basically give preferential treatment to us and you have to effectively do what we say uh, you should do. And if that means you screwing over China or saying no to China right on your doorstep, when logically you would do all your business with China because you're a small country right on the, on the, on the doorstep of uh, 1.5 billion people, you know, an economic powerhouse, in fact, a manufacturing powerhouse of the world. Uh, when you when you try and force those people to 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 not do the normal deals they would do with with China, um, well, China is not going to be happy, right? You're going to have a hard time. Maybe you can you can achieve it through you know through uh, through manipulation or or threats or force or whatever, but you're going to piss off China. And the point is that China has every right. To, to want to do as much business on favorable terms to China with its with its neighbors. And if the neighbors agree, that's fine. And America should keep its nose out of it. But America doesn't keep its nose out of it because America just wants to control the world. And it has been kind of... Uh, no biggie. It has been brought... We just want it all. It has been brought up. America has grown, been brought up to believe that it should control the world and it should dictate terms all around the world. And unfortunately, it has developed and created its economy on the basis of um, having too much influence, un, un, unreasonable influence in far-flung places around the world. And when other countries in those world, like China and Russia, are very big economies, have a lot of resources, say, listen, you know, you've had your time, you've had your day, you need to scale it back a bit. America freaks out and starts setting fires in places. Well, do we have the... the Go ahead. Go ahead, Alan. Well, just one of the developments that that, uh, came out of BRICS was, um, and I I think you alluded to it a little earlier, Neil, uh, there was a a kind of a a triad of the yuan, gold, and oil exchange being set up between Russia and uh, China. And this is another huge way that that RC, Russia and China, is... uh, Pablo um, Pepe Escobar puts it, is just trying to cut out the uh, undue influence of the West uh, through all of its um, banking and clearing systems. Um, So uh, this is a huge threat to the U.S. in particular. And and they are fighting tooth and nail. And and this struggle that you you described in uh, Myanmar um, is just another kind of manifestation of it, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, the media and reporting on these kind of things is just, it's, it doesn't know just, uh, it doesn't even see the inherent propaganda in, in, in their own words on the, or in their worldview. They don't realize that their entire worldview is founded and based in uh, pro-Western propaganda. And they, and they try to object, present things as, as just here's just the facts you know ma'am but even in their words they they expose themselves from for, for what their their ideological agenda is and how it's like not really reasonable like in that report i think it was a reuters a reuters, reuters report on on the port in myanmar that china wants to buy they want to get an 85 percent stake in it and they've offered money for it and the way reuters was reporting on this they just give the facts but they said uh, blah, 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 China looking to take a stake of up to 85% in a strategically important seaport in Myanmar mm-hmm. in a move 
that could heighten tensions over China's growing economic clout in the country. Heightened tensions versus Reuters. This is Western media representing Western governments. Who's, what tensions are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the tensions would be all American and Western. Mm-hmm. So America is tense about China putting a bunch of money into developing a port in Myanmar. Its neighbor, its small neighbor on its doorstep, which is fully entitled to do and which everybody does around the world. But apparently that causes tensions in America. You know, so it's like the way they present it, it's like it's a, it's a, it's self-evident that this should, yeah, create, you it all, should create tensions. Why? You all know what we're talking about, of course, yeah, don't like you? Like I live next door, like there's some guy who lives two miles from me and me and my neighbor want to get together and build a joint project and the guy two miles away, he's having tensions about it. You know what the answer to that is? Take a long walk off a short pier. What the heck? Who? Or what? go see who? your doctor. Yeah. What? If you care. Excuse me? <laughs> tensions? Well, that. you know what? Take your tension and... You know, have fun with it somewhere else. Tension my ass, like Jesus Christ. Yeah, we hope it's not serious. We'll call an ambulance if if you kill over. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know how you get on Um, with your tension. Do we have, can we play that clip? No, we can't. That's a shame. um, I'll I'll put it up on SOT later. So this is a clip we're going to play. I'll just summarize what she said. It was Priscilla Clapp. Her name is C-L-A-P-P. She is senior advisor at the Asia Society, which is some U.S. NGO, also the founder of the U.S. Institute for Peace, I believe. There's her, a, her, her, a phrase. I know, I know. It's so Orwellian. But the, it is part of the irony. See, she, her bona fides to, to comment on this issue is that she was in Burma for years. Right. Helping to build democracy and, you know, peaceful right. institutions. She, she was there doing the empire's work, so to speak. And she realized. But she she came on. She, she This interview, she was on um, France 24, France's um, uh, English language news channel. And the reporter asked her the question, um, something ter- totally leading like, um, so Mrs. Clapp, why hasn't um, Aung San Aung Sung- Kyi condemned yet the Myanmar government's atrocities committed against the Rohingya people? And she's like, well, hold on, this isn't what's going on there at all. And then she breaks, and she she basically breaks down in ten minutes exactly what's going on. Um, she basically said nobody knows what's going on. There's there's conflict on both sides. Well, no, no, she she totally turned around. She was even more forthcoming. Yeah, she said, as you said, it's a terrorist insurgency, and they're they're in among the diaspora of the the Muslim population, and the reason. They, she said nobody knows what the real numbers are of people fleeing but if there's tens of thousands of people fleeing it's because they're fleeing them the terrorists they're not fleeing the Burmese government right yeah but it's spun that way in the media I mean you just got to be really careful I mean you'd probably see a lot of this people listening to the show will probably see a lot of this stuff in the media or you'll see it on the sides or whatever of, of this ongoing conflict in, in Myanmar and you just kind of realize that everything you're seeing is just totally spun the wrong way. I mean, it's it's very manipulated and very uh, one-sided and it's all, it seems to be all for the purpose of um, putting pressure on the Myanmar government and um, to to um, to come into the kind of Western sphere of influence and even allow Western, I mean, who knows where it could go, but you could end up having some kind of peacekeepers or, you, or, or, or something involved there. Um, 
or to or even to put pressure on them to give some kind of autonomy because Myanmar actually has in the, on the other side of the country uh, there are uh, there are various um, kind of um, separatist groups that aren't Muslim um, but are kind of like more Chinese or whatever and have wanted for a long time to be kind of have some kind of independence and they've been there's several autonomous zones within Myanmar that have been given autonomy now. I think this is what the West is angling for with this Rohingya uh, people. I mean, this term now, the Rohingya people. Like, I mean, you never heard the Rohingya people before, like in the Western press, you know, but suddenly it's all over the place. Oh, won't won't someone shed some tears for the poor Rohingya people? You know, it's like, uh, not that people aren't suffering. It's a very poor area of the country and all that kind of stuff, but it's much more complex and much more nuanced than you're going to get in the Western press. And what they probably want is that, the, that the Myanmar government gives the Rohingya people their own little kind of, which are, they're basically Bangladeshis from next door, uh, give them their own uh, autonomous zone, which would then be, have its own kind of like uh, elected representative government or whatever. And, and then it would, it would have a new, it would immediately be given, uh, recognized uh, diplomatically by the US and they would immediately establish ties with it. And then that part of the country, which includes the port, would be off limits to China. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. Yeah, and they want new leadership. Um, th- this woman, Priscilla Clapp, said that uh, these insurgents are going around targeting the leaders of the Rohingya right. community in, in, in that region. Yeah, I mean, it's just a... Lopping uh, off heads. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's very, I mean, and and of course, there's an, an attack on the people in, in Myanmar, or, or it's 80% Buddhist, basically, so a lot of them are monks, right? There's a lot of big Buddhist monk population, and, uh, and interestingly, for it's, it's quite... Uh, Quite relevant to what's going on in America today, because the leader of these 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 Buddhists uh, who are kind of militant Buddhists, basically, and have been you know against these Rohingya people, his the way he describes it is that these people in this area in Rakhine State uh, on the south and the west of of Myanmar are going to overrun us. These Muslims are going to overrun us. They're a bunch of crazy Muslims, and they don't like the Buddhists. Don't like apparently these Buddhists don't like the Muslims. Don't like the Islam. And they're basically immigrants, he says. And these Muslim immigrants are coming in and taking all of our jobs. They're going to take over our country. And we're become, we, the Buddhists, are going to become a minority in this part of Myanmar. And what does that remind you of? It's the Western <laughs> narrative, isn't it? No, no, but that, but well, that, that's partially what's, true. Well, no, but that's what's going on with with it's, it's, it has a, a direct correlation with the immigrant situation in, in Europe, in where Europe, you have yeah. white Westerners and Americans saying Muslims are going to replace us. Muslims, yeah. are going to, Muslims are going to take over all of Europe and replace us. You know, so it's weird. You know, and, and these people, these Buddhists, have a really dim view of, of Islam. You know, and of course that's fueled by the whole you know past X number of years of Muslim terrorism. Right since the war on terror, this is effectively landed back at the neocons who started the war on terror and who did nine eleven. Uh, more or less in one way or another um, and, and started this war on, on, on terrorism and has spawned so-called Muslim terrorism and the, the reality of crazy Muslim groups like ISIS running around and, and, and slaughtering people, right? Yeah. So that this, this Buddhist guy is being informed by that new reality that has yeah. been created as a result of America's war on terrorism. He's singing from the right hymn sheet but in this, con- in this context it's flipped where the powers to be are pushing this agenda of oh, the poor Muslims in the Rohingya state, all oh, the poor right. people. But he's on the winning streak because he's coming from the narrative of, well, yeah, we're all being overrun by Muslims. Right. You can see what I'm talking about, right? Right. Yeah. It's bizarre, you know. I mean, people need to step back and take, a, take stock of that fact, you know, that Bush, 
the neocons launched a war on Muslim terrorism, which was effectively, if you look at it, obviously a, more, a war on Muslims because they went around the world, well, in the Middle East, particularly in, in Afghanistan, and slaughtered, to date, probably a couple of million Muslims, most of them civilians, killed two million Muslims as part of a war on Muslim terrorism. And it was all justified, right? Especially after 9-11, it was like, get those dirty ragheads, blah, 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 whatever, whatever pejorative term was used. Uh, and everybody hated the, the Muslims were bad, a bunch of Muslims, you know, I mean, very, there was only a small contingent on the left, you know, who were, who would have been pro-Muslim, but then, uh, that, that was somehow in the years, because of the war, because of the killing of ordinary Muslims, then it became a love the Muslims, you know, adopt a refugee, adopt a Muslim refugee, let them all into Europe, you know, bring them all in type of thing. And you end up dividing the population, you know, between people who are just lefties who are sucked into this humanitarian kind of ideology of like, you know, what about the poor people? What about the poor Rohingya? What about the poor Iraqis? What about the poor Syrians? Uh, what about the poor immigrants, basically? And other people who say, this is ridiculous. You can't have a bunch of people from foreign countries who don't speak our language and, and don't have any qualifications flooding into our country. And the people who started all this are sitting back and what, are they just laughing it up or something? Mm-hmm. Or do they just need a good punch in the face? Both. I, uh, option B for me. Not well, the Muslims. Yeah. The uh, neocons. Isn't there Pretty another long. group in, in China? I want to say their name is like uh, the Augurs or something. Uh, and, and a few years ago, they... they you, Uyghurs, I think. Uyghurs. 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 The Uyghurs? Yogurts. Yogurts. The, the yogurts. Uh, and yeah, they, want... they are in eastern China, way over in eastern China. A bunch of them came into Syria because they're mm-hmm. Muslims in eastern eastern uh, China. But the way – they're and they're actually – I mean, I think some of them are in Afghanistan as well because they're right on that – I can't remember the name of the past now, but this little strip of land between mm. Afghanistan and China that creates a border effectively with Afghanistan and China that was created by the, the Brits. The something finger. It's something, it's something uh, pass or strip anyway. or whatever. It's a thin strip of land joining Afghanistan in between Pakistan and India, joining Pakistan with China. Oh, sorry, Pac- Afghanistan with China. And these guys are over just in that eastern part of China in front of that strip of land. And, um, yeah, those guys have been, you know, they've been, there's been a bit of an insurgency over there because the people want independence. And wow, how amazing. Those people actually want, those people who want independence in China just happen to be in an area that China would be using to build its roads and its railways and its pipelines into the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Wow, what a coincidence. I mean, how many coincidences like this do you need, you know? Where, the, where, where Muslim terrorist or Muslim insurgency, whatever you want to call them, suddenly appear in a part of the world that just so happens to block plans of China and Russia and Iran, all of America's enemies, to actually move uh, economically, to move, move out into the world. It's just, it's just a coincidence. Mm. Not. Yeah. Uh, the Russians and Chinese had some joint statement on Afghanistan, actually. I think this is kind of a counter, a counter move to Trump's um, big Afghanistan deal to send in 4,000 more troops a couple of weeks ago. Um their joint, dec- uh, joint declaration at the BRICS summit proposed an Afghan-led and Afghan-owned 
peace and national reconciliation process. What that amounts to in practice, I don't know, but um, they, they're clearly onto this. Probably happened since the beginning, but um, that's, I mean, that's, that's something that's, that's, that's at least a bit reassuring, you know, that they, 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 they surely know that this is what's going on, that they see it in this way, um, mm. that this is a way to keep them from doing what they want to do, but that doesn't stop them from doing what they want to do. No. Yeah. No, the whole thing is uh, is interesting. It's it's all just in kind of hindsight, you know. Now, with the with the perspective of you know the last sixteen years or or so, and with the launch of the after nine eleven and the movement into Iraq, U.S. projecting its power into Iraq and and its people into Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and look back on that now and you see particularly in the case of Afghanistan, but also Afghanistan for China, basically. That in 2001, and of course, the plan to go into Afghanistan and Iraq was developed, was laid out before 9-11. I think it was 1998 by the neocons. So in 1998, when Russia was still kind of collapsed, basically, only kind of starting to come out of the, the destruction after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and Putin was a couple of years away or a year or two away. Someone in America, the planners in America in 1988 already saw that China was going to be an issue, so we need to be in Afghanistan. And Russia, even in its kind of collapsed state, or relatively collapsed state, needed, uh, was going to be an issue, and we needed to be in the Middle East. Madeleine like Albright, 20, the, the Secretary 20 of years State. ago. Yeah. Yeah. In the 90s, she was saying, I think she was quoted as saying something like, um, well, you know, Russia's too big for itself. It, it's got too many, right. you know, it's got too much land. Uh, and it's, you know, it's just a, as ridiculous a statement as saying, you know, we feel a hundred, you know, we feel a million dead children in Iraq uh, was worth, you know, mm -hmm. uh, getting Saddam out or, or, or having regime change. I mean, if you really pay attention to the things that these people say, and they do say them every so often, uh, you get a real insight into their pathology um, mm -hmm. and, and, and how they feel. I mean, you know, Siberia, it, it, it's too big a landmass for the Russians. I mean, I mean, what, mm -hmm. like, you know, this gets back to what you were saying a little earlier. About arrogance. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it, you, know, uh, you know, you can't have that. You know, what, what, what are you mm -hmm. doing? You, you can't possibly benefit from your own natural resources or from uh, business deals uh, with your neighbors. The gist of what she was saying was that um, it was unfair for Russia to be endowed with so many natural resources and for it not to share them. Mm. It's, it's actually it's something that's popped up. I've, I've read similar things from for, that justified colonialism in the 19th century along the lines of, well, all these places have these resources. It's not fair that they don't open up and let us in. It's not really let that. us in. Yeah, it's not, it's, yeah, it's unfair, it's unjust. I mean, if they, if they had to come down to a justice kind of explanation for it, but they've also said, you know, their, their general attitude is um, that 
they see the world as resources. You know, obviously there's human resources, but as, yeah. in terms of natural resources, there that's that's the reality. That's the that's that's the facts on the ground. Is that there is oil or gas or whatever other minerals under these parts in in the ground in these parts of the world, and there just happens to be a bunch of people living on it, unfortunately. Right? So it's not that it's theirs. These people don't own these resources. They just happen to be living on the ground under which the resources are found. That's the perspective these people have always taken. And that allows them then to do what they want with with those people. Yeah. It allows them to justify it in their psycho way. And for so long, they've argued that only we are endowed with the competence to extract, distribute, and manage these resources. To a certain extent, that was true. It's not true anymore. Right. It's not true anymore, but uh, old habits are hard to break. You know what I mean? It's funny. um, At the the Vladivostok Forum, the Far East Forum, um, there was actually, there was an American representation there. I wish we got a clip for it to play it. A mealy mouth representation. It was the. Of course, he'd be attracted for going because we're talking about Pacific trade. It's vast. Uh, We want to get a piece of the pie of whatever comes next out of it, right? Jerry Brown, the governor of California, showed up. Mm. So he's not in any official Trump administration uh, representation, but he he was there, you know, to listen and to speak. I heard him interviewed, and he, he didn't have anything to say about any of the constructive issues that were being discussed. All he did was rant about how evil North Korea is. So he was there to remind all the other attendees, you got to get in line vis-a-vis North Korea. But I mean, it's like, get it, dude, dude, no. He just sounded, he sounded like a madman in a yeah. sea of people going, okay, this guy's nuts. Who invited him? Yeah. But that's the thing. They're, on, they're invited. They're not being excluded. The thing, it, I, I, they're probably extremely sharp and they're, you know, they've got, they're well armed. They're prepared to go a certain distance against the empire, in quotes. But at every step of the way, there are pains to point out that we're not here to undercut or to cut out or to isolate the U.S. That's happening all by its lonesome. They're they're perfectly welcome to attend all these forums. Um, and that's another thing. There's nothing really revolutionary, mm-hmm. if you think, at least at the ideological level, about what Putin or Xi says at the at, the, at these events. They keep hammering the same basic things. It's rather boring and mundane when you think about it. They just keep saying, let's all agree to uphold international law. International law isn't fair. fair. Well, they're they're trying to hold things to a standard. If that's the standard, let's stick with that. We have a standard already, which is to hell international law. (laughs) And it's who dares wins. Mike makes right. Well, that's a good point, Neil. I mean, effectively, the U.S. and, and other... Uh, European countries are cutting themselves out uh, with with their attitudes. Uh, yeah, because would, when it comes to it, they, they can't live up to the standards they shove down everyone else's throat. You know, the ideological ones, human rights, democracy, fair trade, free trade. I mean, this, this is the insanity of what's going on. At BRICS, people are, they're, 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 one of the things they talked most about was how to counter this protectionist um, mania coming out of Europe and the U.S. Mm-hmm. 
it, how things have changed, it's now the rest of the world that's like, well, no, free trade. Like you said, like you trained us to be, we're right. all about free trade. Right. It's a global world now, interconnected markets, yada, yada, yada. Uh, no, not when you have all the goodies no. to sell. Yeah. <laughs> not when you have all the resources to sell. That's, oh, no, I don't want free trade anymore. No, 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 no. <laughs> Suddenly a level playing field scares the hell out of them. Of but course it does. But yeah. if, you, I mean, if America's been built up on ill-gotten gains, the level of playing field means they lose. By definition, they will have to tighten their belts. By definition, and the Chinese and the Russians are listen. Okay, you know, well, you can't complain too much. I mean, you had it pretty good for a while there, right? But you know, it's a different world now. It's a multipolar world, so you just gotta restructure yourself. And you might you might have to go on a diet to a certain extent, but you know, you'll you'll survive and it'll be okay. And America's like, no effing way, that is not happening. I'm top dog. I eat first and best and you all get the scraps and the rest of the world's like eh. and by god you're going to be fair. you're going to be using dollars not yen or right. gold or rubles right. remember these that's the mean by which yeah yeah so yeah it's pretty sad you know but that's what happens when you have psychos in power you know they just don't see any sense or reason and um they're unable to to you know just play fair basically they're unable to uh, cooperate um, and it's a real problem, you know. It has this in a real. It's kind of like it. That's that's why the the world keeps apparently being pushed to this kind of brink all the time, you know, because there's no there's no cooperation from the American partners, as Putin calls them, you know, and it all so it's always brinkmanship. It's, that's the response is always brinkmanship, you know. North Korea is going to get bombed, you know. Uh, Syria is going to get bombed. Uh, it's funny that in a way, what it is. It, it's they're freaking out at their first contact with democracy. Well, what I mean by that is international. Yeah, play fair. We're all fair we're all big powers with say the equal share of votes, roughly at at the same table. And that that's just like no no no. Best we just don't go, not report about that event, pretend it wasn't there. And then, you know, but democracy is some subterfuge behind the back. But democracy is a sham. It always has been. Because democracy effectively means equality. In a, in a world like we have today, and you put all these people at the table, all the leaders of the major countries at the table, you put China there. China is going to have a bigger say of course. than, say, Pakistan but that, that or would... Iran. Why? Why? Because they've got far more resources. So it's not equal. And this gets into the whole social, social justice warrior business where everybody has to be equal and stuff. It's the same ideology. It's the same messed up bullshit ideology whereas the problem is that the Americans pretended to adhere to it they, they passed this off on people like democracy and fair trade and fair play and you know well, okay, and, how about and, this free, and free trade but they never practiced it because they realized themselves behind the scenes was that well you know what if I'm stronger than someone I'm not going to be democratic I'm not going to like allow that person to kind of like get as much as me if, I, if I'm taller and I can reach the, higher up on the apple tree then I'm going to get more apples than the guy who's two foot four right I'm not going to share them with him so it's totally, fundamentally anti, anti-democratic and anti-equality. But, and that's the reality that they've been working on. And to a certain extent, that is the reality of the world, right? But the problem is that now that you have bigger powers in the world who can hold their own, America is screaming like a little girl that, that, about equality. The thing that they passed off yeah. on people previously as a ruse while they pillaged the world now they want to go back to oh no let's 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 stick to the letter of of the of the free trade and democratic thing where everybody has to have an equal share and equal space or equal rights at the table and and the Chinese said, well okay maybe 
But, you know, the Chinese and the Russians know very well as well that with their resources, uh, you know, America's, America comes is down the table, you know. It's, it's down, the, down the league table. You yeah. Know? That, that, that reality has to impose itself in the world. But the question is it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to create a, uh, an evil empire that abuses everybody else. China and Russia can say, if you have a lot of resources, but there's a lot of people who want to have those resources, well, those people collectively in, in a global, in a multipolar world can all buy your resources. You can get, your own economy can increase, but the people who buy the resources, they also get a good deal, right? Mm-hmm. They all get to buy proper resources. So it's trade basically on, a, on that basis. It doesn't have to be the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the, the world that, that, that Russia and China are envision, envisioning. Uh, with, but with the recognition that they are going to have a, a say, a bigger say than the, yeah, av- than the average person. Then but it doesn't have to be evil. They don't have no, to be... No, it's proportional representation. Right. So China will have a bigger say. So India eventually will have a big say. Right. Not because that's how it should be, but because with everyone expressing their full or roughly running at potential, right. that's what would naturally happen. Right. The it two biggest natural. countries, the two biggest share of the votes at the table, in quotes, following this analogy, would be right. China and India. Right. The producer needs buyers, you know. This is the bottom line. And, and, just, and it's not just all one way either, you know. Yeah, it's just a, an intention to be cooperative. Uh, trade is good. Uh, you know, Afghanistan could benefit greatly from a, a, a good relationship with um with China and or Russia. Uh, North yeah. Korea. I mean, you know, the, they can help build infrastructure. Uh, and it's so, I mean, and, and it's truly capitalism. That's true capitalism. It's not monopoly cap- capitalism or, 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 the, or the type of capitalism we've been told exists in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so the whole world is, is well, not the whole world because half the world doesn't know what's really going on with BRICS as we mentioned before. But um, but at least there's a good part of Asia, you know, they're calling it BRICS Plus now because you have all of these other uh, countries that are waiting to um, to be part of it uh, or observing it, uh, like that economic forum as well. And uh, they they all see a good thing. And, you know, last two years, they've all watched what Russia has done in Syria. It stood up to the U.S., uh, it's, it's kept, uh, the fires kind of, um, uh, low in, uh, Ukraine to the extent that that was possible. Uh, these are, these are smart thinking, constructive people. And, um, you know, I, I think speaking I think of, the world is taking sides right now. Yeah. Speaking of Ukraine, um, be hard to see it happening, but still there it is. Putin used, um, either the BRICS, I think the BRICS event to suggest his uh, proposed solution for Ukraine. Um, I think that's actually gone further. I think the, the Russian envoy at the UN has submitted a resolution proposal to send peacekeepers to Southeast Ukraine. Um, just the act of doing that, of doing something reasonable, mm-hmm. following international law, whether or not it, we'll see how it pans out. But that that's the response to the Trump administration signing off on the deep state deal to flood weapons into Ukraine, to right. ramp up the conflict. And the, the two, in, they stand in such contrast that it has to be reported and everyone sees the eminent reasonableness of it. And that's happening more and more often. 
Yeah. Well, I think we'll call it a night there, will we? Yes. It's mm-hmm. a good note. We have to get back. We have to get back to uh, back to hurricane watching. Yes. And screaming bloody murder about things. Yes. You know, in line with the media. To go and get hystericized by the media about the end times. And now it's all going to come down around our ears any moment now. Uh, no, it's pretty bad. I mean, I wouldn't like to be obviously in that position. We've had a few storms, but um, not hurricanes. Um, but it remains to be seen what it's going to do to uh, do to Florida. And if the predictions will pan out. And then there's Jose, Hurricane Jose brewing in the background. Some predictions of him going up east coast of uh, of the US later later in the week. So, so another, let's see what happens there. Another eight huh? days of another eight days of speculation. Of of wild wild speculation. Yeah. Well, if you can stand it. I think I'll go for a walk. I think I'll read a book. Yeah. I think I'll meditate. All right. All righty. Sounds like, sounds like a good idea. All right, Alan. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Take care. Stay safe. And keep on reading Sot. Indeed. Have a good evening, everyone. And anybody who's in Florida, stay safe. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.